Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, February 4th, we are studying Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 30. As Jesus continues his ministry around the Sea of Galilee, he shows himself to be the Lord, the Lord over his disciples, Lord over the wind and the waves, and Lord over Satan and his demons. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ this morning as we study God's word, we have a full round table of pastors. This is not a round table, but we're calling it that anyways. We're broadcasting live this morning from Faith Lutheran High School in Central Texas. That's located in Warda, Texas, the big sprawling metropolis between Giddings and LaGrange. In our round table this morning, we have a few familiar voices and one new voice. First, we have with us Pastor Dustin Beck, who is pastor right here at Holy Cross Lutheran Church in Warda, Texas. Pastor Beck, good morning. Good morning, Tim. We have Pastor Nate Hill from St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas. Pastor Hill, good morning. Good morning, Pastor Apple. And then the newcomer, Pastor Jason Casper of Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in LaGrange, Texas. Pastor Casper, welcome to Sharper Iron. Thank you, sir. Brothers, it's good to be with you. This is a new thing for us here, so we're going to do our best to help our listeners sharpen their faith in God's Word today with Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 34. Pastor Beck, if you all get us started this morning with a bit of context as we dig into the text. Sure, yeah. This is a um, this is a great text, uh, especially for a roundtable with three guests, because there are sort of three sections here. Um, the After several days of healing, I mean, Jesus has finished the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he's gone out and he's, he's healed several folks. He's dry, uh, driven out demons, um, and then he's just sort of, I mean, I guess the way that we put it, especially in this epiphany season, is that he has manifested his reign, right? The inbreaking of the kingdom of God. Um, he's shown glimpses and glimpses and glimpses, but now um, he's going to command something of a strategic retreat. He's going to back away, he and his disciples, uh, from the crowds and everybody else, and he's going to draw away. And as he draws away, um, we're going to see uh, that there are going to be some folks that maybe want to follow him, maybe don't. Um, Jesus is going to answer that with, uh, with some harsh words, some seemingly harsh words. Uh, Jesus is going to go with his disciples into a boat, and then Jesus is going to continue to bring his kingdom to hurting people. Um, so when we read this, uh, I think it's a good thing to point out the fact that Jesus does from time to time, um, well, at least in the Gospels, he doesn't always and uh, at all times allow his kingdom to simply burst onto the scenes. There are times when he retreats for prayer. There are times when he takes the disciples away for teaching. Um, and so in this instance, we see one of those times. Um, of course, he's giving us foretastes, and he's giving us pictures, images, really, of what is to come in the final eschaton on the last day when Jesus comes again, uh, the full healing of our bodies, the the full uh, restoration of our soul. Uh, so we look for that day, uh, but until then, we've got this text uh, to guide us. We've got this text uh, to remind us uh, just exactly what Jesus has come to do. Gentlemen, anything to add to the context as we prepare? They're looking at me like they've never talked to me before. <laughs> you get blank stares instead. That's right. This is a group, by the way, that meets regularly to study the text. And so we're just incorporating this into what we normally do. It's important for pastors to get together to sharpen each other's faith in God's word. And so 
We're glad that you're with us here this morning as we do that for each other, that it will bless you as well. So let's go ahead and dig right into this text. Matthew chapter 8, beginning at verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid? O you of little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the wind and the sea. And there was a great calm. And the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this that even the wind and sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. There's the text for today, Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 34. As Pastor Beck mentioned, we do have three sections here. One where Jesus is addressing some people. There's a crowd around him, and, and someone comes up to him, a scribe, says, I, I want to follow you. But we don't get quite the response that maybe we would expect. Pastor Hill, dig into this for us. Yeah, the interesting thing that we see here with this uh, scribe that comes up to talk to Jesus and uh, indicate that he's got a desire to follow him wherever he goes is he's speaking in the future tense. He says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. It reminds me of the kind of gimmicky sign that you see at various restaurants or, or places that says, you know, free lunch tomorrow. And it's painted on the side of the wall, right? It's always tomorrow. It's never today. Uh, therefore, it's never false advertising, I suppose. Um, Jesus looks into his heart and um, through the eyes that only he can perceive with, understands that um, this scribe has no idea the cost of what it would mean to follow Christ. Um, and this is a theme, of course, throughout the Gospels, that people expect that following Christ will be something that brings them some sort of glory or acclaim in the eyes of the world. But um, as is shown in Jesus' own life, it's a, a cruciform life of the disciple, one that's not fully understood yet in the fact that they've not seen Christ go to the cross. But with us, his eyes focused there, he knows what he'll be doing and that if a disciple's to follow in his footsteps, uh, that we certainly in our own ways will be bearing our own crosses and giving up um, very, very important things to us, things that are near and dear for the sake of following him. And I, I just wanted to chime in that uh, it's interesting the way that the uh, that the scribe approaches Jesus, right? He refers to him as teacher, rabbi. He he calls out to him as teacher, which sounds like something that is a respect. But in the Gospel of Matthew, um, something like twenty times, uh, people refer to Jesus as teacher, and it's 
never the guys who are on the inside of the kingdom. It's always the people on the outside looking in. It's always um, the scribes, the Pharisees, the disciples of the Pharisees, folks like that. Um, and, and contrast that with what came before today's text uh, in which you have uh, lepers and, and you have uh, folks, uh, all different types of folks actually calling out on Jesus as Lord. There's a big contrast between knowing Jesus as Lord and simply knowing him as a teacher, right? Just wanted to add that in. What about what about Jesus' response then? He he brings up Jesus does this a lot. I've I've been noticing as we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew. He he uses images from from nature. Here we've got foxes and birds. We've heard from birds again. What's what is Jesus' response to this man? How how does he temper his excitement or maybe give him a true picture? of what it means to be a disciple. So he doesn't outright say no, does he? He doesn't tell the guy, go home. He doesn't tell the guy, no, not interested. Um, he just simply tells him what the expectations are of the reign of God. Right? He says, this is what the kingdom looks like. Um, he says, there's no comforts um, uh, as far as earthly comforts. There's no, um, there's no place that you can call your own because, um, you know, we're going to suffer uh, all things uh, in this life. Uh, we're going to take up Jesus. Um, and so he allows the man's own heart to convict himself, right? Um, Jesus puts out the hard word for him that says, um, the son of man and those who follow by extension have no place to lay their head. Um, and then the man walks away uh, condemned. It's kind of like the, the rich young ruler in Matthew's gospel, right? That comes and says, what good thing must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, you know, keep the law. And then he says, you know, well, you lack one thing, uh, sell all that you have and give it to the poor. Um, he doesn't tell Jesus, uh, the Jesus doesn't tell the man, uh, uh, you know, you know, you can't do that. He simply lays out the expectations and the man is unable to live up to them. There is a curious difference, though. In this case, we don't know what happened to this guy. So instead of the of the rich young ruler who goes away sad, sure. and empty, this one, something happened. Yeah, exactly. The other shoe doesn't drop, though. Yeah. What, what's the significance that we don't get? the response from this man, Pastor Casper? Well, there's there's more room for us to to read ourselves into this text and and draw from it where the where the word of God is is pushing us in life. And I think that's 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 got more room there. Because the one that goes away sad, we don't ever want to put ourselves into that text, even though we still belong there. This one is a little easier for me to latch myself into. So in those in those cases, and this is true not just here, but say another good example would be the the parable in Luke chapter fifteen sons. You've got the younger son who who runs off and is welcomed back, and you've got the older son who's also lost, and the father invites him back in, and we never find out what happens to that older son. So in, in cases like that, just as we have here, we're invited to put ourselves into the text. What will what will my response be? What will your response be? Another feature of, of Jesus' answer here, and I think this may be the first time that we've seen this, Jesus refers to himself by one of his favorite titles. He calls himself the Son of Man. Now, we use that phrase a lot as Christians. I mean, there's in the, the hymn, Beautiful Savior, right? Son of God and Son of Man is one of the most maybe common places we see it. We see it all over the Gospels. Why does Jesus use that title to refer to himself? What's he, what's he doing with this? We're all pointing at each other here. <laughs> Round tables are new to us too. Um, <clears throat> so from all the reading that I could do, it sounds like, um, you know, there are some connections um, to Daniel chapter seven. There are some connections to Ezekiel, um, you, O son of man, et cetera. Uh, but 
really and truly, the fact that this is never leveled as a charge against Jesus, the fact that nobody ever comments back on it, Jesus just uses this as an expression for himself. And so it almost, uh, from the commentators that I read through, um, it almost sounds like this is, it's not an out of the ordinary, unusual statement. It's not that anybody at the time was attaching significant, uh, tremendous theological significance to it. I mean, this is how Jesus responds to him. Uh, refers to himself rather, uh, but it's never leveled as a charge against him. It's never um, on the lips of anybody else. Nobody, you know, when Jesus uh, uh, rides on, on a donkey and on, on uh, Palm Sunday, nobody is there saying, hail to the son of man, right? It's, uh, it's the son of David. It's, it's all about his title there as, as king of the Jews um, or, or even uh, the confession of Jesus as the son of God. Right. But we never see anybody else um, call him the son of man. And so this is just sort of uh, one of those um, strange and mysterious to us uh, type occurrences where Jesus, this is how he self-identifies to these people. This is how he he puts himself out there um, as the son of man, emphasizing uh, perhaps for us that he is true man. Um, of course, we see by his uh, resurrection that he is true God uh, and by the miracles that we're going to be discussing today. Nevertheless, uh, this is um, this is just a mysterious, uh, mysterious topic that Jesus, uh, he uses this more than anything else to refer to himself. Um, and yet that's what that's what he gives us. Yeah, it does also um, play into this notion, too, of, of the messianic secret. Sure. Where early on in Jesus ministry, um, he is not as direct as he could be about uh, who he is and what he has come to do. Now, he doesn't obscure his identity, but by using this uh, lesser-known motif from the Old Testament, man, um, he's saying who he is quietly in a way that will invite intrigue, uh, invite contemplation, and will ultimately invite faith and confession. As we see later on, he'll, he'll culminate and say, who do you say I am, right? And, and then having witnessed everything that he's done and connected uh, all of the dots and having been moved by the Spirit to, to know who he is, we say along with Peter, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. But notice in Matthew 16, he says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Indeed. Right? I mean, he's even going to use that title, um, and they just don't have a good answer for him. Mm -hmm. oh, I, I love it. I, I think you're absolutely right. That's a great point. So Jesus, with this first scribe, who calls him teacher, says, look, there's not going to be the, the creaturely comforts if you come follow me. There's not going to be a place to lay your head. Don't, don't expect earthly wealth, earthly prosperity. We're going to see this theme of persecution for the disciples continue in Matthew's gospel, especially as we get toward chapter 10 to that missionary discourse. So he's, he's preparing that for him here. We don't hear the response. We're invited to respond. And then right away, another person comes up. And this one, this one says, another of the disciples... This one calls him Lord. Now, we, we said the word for teacher, that address for Jesus typically indicates someone who's not completely on board with Jesus. But here we've got someone who's specifically labeled a disciple and who calls him Lord. What, what do we know about this guy? Well, he's certainly one of the 12, um, especially at this point um, early on in, in the Gospel of Matthew. We're not using the term disciple here in the loose sense um, in the way that we might uh, consider just one of the the group of the wider followers so um, in the sermon on the mount the 12 gather and a wider audience gathers around here this use of, of disciples as it is one of the 12 um, and what's going on here is is really interesting because this is one of those pronouncements of jesus that seems so incredibly harsh to us um, and what's very interesting is we have to wonder what's going on 
is is this one of the 12 following Jesus and all of a sudden he gets word from his hometown that hey your dad died and he asked Jesus can I go bury him and he says no there's one possibility another possibility is that for some reason perhaps he had gone home to be with his father came and asked Jesus and he gets this response but an interesting third possibility uh, that was brought up in uh, Dr. G Dr. Gibbs's Matthew commentary uh, in the Concordia series was that perhaps um, his father is still living and in good health. And perhaps he's speaking of the responsibility he has in the family and in the culture to be there underneath his father um, until such time comes. He leaves the household uh, to form his own household in marriage with another or until the time when his father dies. Um, and we don't know which of those three it is, um, but to look at those three possibilities and look at Jesus' response it may say slightly different things uh, about what Christ is is telling him, but ultimately it does tell him that following following Christ as a disciple is the number one uh, identity that we we must have, and everything else that we are to do in life, even those things that um, that seem to us to be perfectly good and upright and holy, and in fact are, um, have to take a seat underneath that identity um, as as a Christian and one following Jesus. So then Jesus answer, right? What take us into that? This guy wants to go bury his father who's actually dead or maybe maybe like that older son that we brought up in Luke 15. Maybe he's the good son. He wants to stay at home, take care of his dad till his dad actually dies. He's placing earthly family ahead of Jesus. How does Jesus respond to him? So Jesus responds, <clears throat> follow me leave the dead to bury their own dead. Um, he's talking about those. Uh, I think we've gone back to this uh, this idea of proximity to Jesus, this being on the inside of the kingdom or being on the outside. Um, and so when he's saying, talking about the dead here, he's. Uh, I, I think it's quite clear that he's talking actually dead, right? Because the physically dead can't bury the physically dead. So when he's talking about the spiritually dead here, he's saying those who are outside of the kingdom um, are the ones who are concerned with the outside of the kingdom things. Um, remember, Jesus has come to bring life. Jesus' kingdom, the, the reign of God uh, that Jesus inaugurates and that he brings to fulfillment, um, it is life. And that's, that's what Jesus has called people to be about. I tend to agree with, uh, with Pastor Hill, who brought up that great point that we don't have the, uh, all of the details of this story. And we don't exactly know what the situation is here. Um, I, I tend to say that this is probably a situation where the guy's saying, you know, I've got obligations to my family. Um, the family needs me here. Um, and when they don't need me, then I can follow you. Um, and Jesus just, again, he doesn't have room for that. Um, it, seek first the kingdom of God, he says elsewhere. Right? That's, mm -hmm. that's a thing. That's, that's a thing that Jesus said. Right? Um, and again, but again here, to Pastor Kaspar's early, earlier point, uh, is the fact that um, we don't have the rest of the story. We don't know what happened next. Or we do. Or if we it's do. One of the 12. Because well, the 12 remain 12. <laughs> sure. If you read it that way. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Is there, is there here? So leave the dead. The first, the first dead are the spiritually dead, we're saying, right? Jesus is saying, let the spiritually dead, let those who are not my disciples, attend to the burying of the physically dead. This is this is what he's saying, right? There's two different uses of the term dead. Yes. Thank you. Good. Just making sure we're all on the same page. <laughs> Indeed. Well, the other question too is, is the father also spiritually dead? Is he not just physically dead, but spiritually dead? So you have a physically and spiritually dead father, potentially. 
um, or one who's on his way to both, um, and then the spiritually dead, dead living. But um, regardless, um, <laughs> there's something big going on here. Uh, Jesus is is here. The bridegroom has come, right? Um, now is the time to follow him and all these other things, these these uh, burial customs, whatever it is uh, culturally that we, we would do in this this situation um, is, is not nearly as important uh, as following the Christ. And um, the ship's about to sail, right? Um, and you're going to get on or not. Have you ever been on a cruise ship and seen the people at the pier that didn't make it? Oh my goodness! It's it's a it's a cruise ship rite of passage. If you have a window seat, the the boat's going away, and you watch them running down the pier, and they wave their arms and they wave their arms and say, "Come back and get us." They don't come back and get us. The ship sailed, um, and, and that's the thing I'm picturing here um, as they're about to get in the boat and go across the sea, leaning over the edge. <laughs> so, but to this to this point, the reason that that following Jesus is so important for both of these groups whether spiritually dead or physically dead is because of where he's headed. He's headed to the cross and to the empty tomb. And, and it's only the preaching of Christ crucified and risen that can do anything about the spiritually dead or the physically dead only in Christ is their resurrection. And, and I think even, I mean, we can go even farther to say that, that, that Jesus here invites his disciples into that journey. He calls them to follow him into death and finally resurrection. Absolutely. Very good. Well, then let's let's move forward. Let's cross the sea with Jesus. Let's get on the boat with him. And and this is where uh, Pastor Casper is going to shine because of the four of us gathered around here, he's the only one that uses the the one year the hi historic lectionary. I've been told some, that, some call it that. That's that's what I've been told. Yeah, it's debatable. It's debatable. But <laughs> but in any case, only here. only in that lectionary does Matthew chapter eight verses twenty three through twenty seven show up. Even though he skipped it this year to observe transfiguration this past Sunday. Yeah, you, you threw me a curveball on that one because, uh, yeah, exactly, we had several options this Sunday. We could have done the presentation or the purification or transfiguration as we did here at Mount Calvary, or we could have really gone outside the lines and done Epiphany 4. You rebel. <laughs> That's how they roll in LaGrange. <laughs> so Pastor Casper is going to help us significantly with this text because he's the only one that ever has to preach on it. It shows up in Mark and Luke and in the three-year lectionary, but Pastor Casper gets to preach on it almost every year when Epiphany 4 shows around. So or help us, help us. The, the disciples get into the boat with Jesus. What's, what's going on here in this calming of the storm? So first, as I was, I was talking with my men's club last night, and it stumbled on this little bit too, we get into the boat. And the boat metaphor is perfect for the life of the church. Well, this is a literal boat, though, right? This is a literal boat. Okay. But it functions metaphorically at the same time in the text. And so we have this opportunity to look at our own churches and see ourselves in this boat in the same, in a, in a, in a similar way. We look at the, the building of our churches, which have that sort of upside down boat structure in them, which is supposed to be visually echoing that sort of thing. And so what do we see? We see the disciples in the boat. And here, behold, a great storm arose on the sea, a great seismos, which is an interesting word to describe a storm on the sea. They, you, you just spoke another language. Yes, yeah, sorry, Casper. seismos, which would usually mean from Greek earthquake, so a rumbling, shaking torrent in the sea, something that's, that's described in a different way. And the sea shaking and, and under their feet. And what do they do? They're terrified. What's Jesus doing? Sleeping in the front of the boat. What else would you do? Probably not that. I imagine not. How, what? I mean, this is this is one of those points. I don't want to skip over this. Jesus is sleeping. What? What do we draw from that? What do we? What do we teach based on that? 
Well, I think we that's when we're actually going to skip to the end. That the Lord of the Sea and the Waves has nothing to fear from the sea and the waves. Mm. So, so why wouldn't can, you sleep? He can sleep. Pastor Hill, you look like you want to say something. Well, um, the Son of Man is Son of Man here too, right? right? Physical right. needs um, to sleep. And of course, when we read this, he's sleeping because the storm doesn't uh, cause him any fear. But um, I imagine he's quite exhausted as well, having um, having done everything that he's done and, and the miracles he's performed in the teaching that he's given. So, um, yeah, dog tired mm. um, and unafraid. Was that a song reference that I don't know? No. Okay. Just making sure. Cause we'll you work could, on that. You know more music than I do. <laughs> Jesus putting his own seal of approval on naps. Yes. <laughs> Take a nap. What would, what, Jesus, I tell my children. what would Jesus do? That's what I tell my children. The Take a nap. The post liturgical nap. That's what on a boat. On a boat. <laughs> I think we're going to take our break here this morning in the middle of the text. We're, we're just, we're really getting into this now. You're listening to Sharp Iron here on Worldwide KFU. Take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Did you know that your individual retirement account may make the best gift to KFUO? The IRS now allows individuals 70 and a half or older to transfer their required minimum distribution directly to charity and avoid paying the associated income tax. These gifts can provide regular long-term resources to KFUO. If you have questions about making an IRA gift to KFUO, call me, Mary, at 314-996-1518. We'll send a representative out to help answer your questions and help you establish a legacy of giving to your favorite radio station, Worldwide KFUO. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Tuesday, February 4th. We're studying Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 34 with a rectangular table of pastors. Pastor Dustin Beck from Holy Cross Lutheran Church in Warda. He waved. Pastor Nate Hill from St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester. He also is waving. And then Pastor Jason Casper of Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in LaGrange, Texas. So, No wave? No wave. Chin we almost We almost did the wave. He, he nodded. Pastor Casper nodded at all of you. So we're looking at Jesus in the boat. He's asleep. He's truly a man. He needs to rest. He's tired. In this boat, there's a great storm, great storm on the sea, an earthquake on the sea, Pastor Casper tells us. And, and the boat is being swamped by the waves. Now, we've got Jesus' disciples in the boat with him. These men, many of them, are experienced fishermen. Great storms on the Sea of Galilee were not uncommon. How do they react? In terror, mm. as if this one was somehow bigger than than the rest or in some other will. And the, the, taking a slight stab in a different direction there from that, where, where I would go preaching in this text in particular is back to the Old Testament. Because the, the, the sea and the tumult and the chaos are usually those things that point us to sin, disorder, and discord, 
and all the things that humanity brought and corrupted the world with. And so this is this is in preaching where we get to say, here we are, even though this is a literal story of a literal storm on the sea, this is also fitting for us to understand that we are the cause of discord in the world. And that is that is how we fit into the story in, in, a, in a small particular way. And so the thing about this metaphor of the sea and the waves is that it, it fits us and quite frankly, we like to be that way. We prefer the discord because we keep going back to it. Like Luther would say, as a dog returns to its vomit, we go back to the, the thing that we shouldn't do. But the disciples are scared they of are. this chaos and this discord. They don't, they don't seem to love the chaos and the discord. They, they ask for salve. They're afraid of it. They're scared of it. They want salvation from it. I, I appreciate the point. When we see Jesus on the sea in the midst of a storm we should be thinking about those old testament passages that describe storms chaos as the powers of darkness that which would oppose god and and his word and so to see here you've, you've got an enemy attacking jesus and his disciples what's the reaction of each right so so pastor apple i think that's that's the direction that i took this text when i was uh, when i was reading through it and, and studying it is that this is in a very real, tangible way, this is a spiritual warfare, right? Um, the devil is attacking um, right here and right now. And, and what we have to notice is that when the devil attacks the faithful, what is he aiming at? Not at their lives. Uh, Jesus is in the boat. He's aiming at their faith, right? Um, and so the question that is asked of them, Lord, don't you care? We are perishing, right? Lord, save us. We're perishing. Um, when they come out with that response, um, you can see that their fear of, of we would call it nature, their fear of, of the unknown, their fear of the depths, their fear of the sea um, and of the storm is greater than their trust, their fear, uh, if you will, uh, in the Lord. Um, and so here they cry out uh, from a place of, uh, do you want to say disbelief or do you just want to say a shaken faith? Maybe mm. it's a shaken faith. Uh, but I think that that's, that's an important component of this is that there are the, the dark spiritual forces that are taking place here. And um, maybe we don't talk about that as much as we, we could or should um, in today's church, that um, there are times when, uh, when it is appropriate for us to uh, go to the Lord in prayer uh, because, you know, we don't know if it's, if it's something reaching out to get us, reaching out to shake our faith um, or not. So I think that that's a, a helpful thing for us today, an application for us to look at. Well, it's interesting the way a different text or a, a, a similar or these same text will hit different readers differently, right? Sure. So it sounds like we've seen the manifestation of this chaos in the storm. Number one is assigned to our sinfulness and the chaos it brings, assigned to the spiritual warfare that takes place in the battle with Satan to overtake um, Christ and his followers and what they're doing. <clears throat> As I read this text, um, I asked the question, who is it that shakes the earth but God himself? Oh, good point. Right? Um, I'm, I'm struggling to come up with a place where I've, I've noticed that, that Satan has given that sort of dominion to do that type of, of physical interaction with the world. So in my mind, I'm reading this, that the storm comes in a way that's beyond what these experienced fishermen are used to because it comes from God himself. And in that sense, it's God setting up a, um, great experience that the disciples are going to have of being in chaos and fear and disorder and then see at the word of of jesus christ his son 
that everything comes back in order in the same power uh, that the father sent this short amount of chaos. The son calls it, calls it back and, um, and calms it all. So I think what we call this is uh, sanctified speculation. Right. Sure. 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 Yeah. <laughs> well, this is I think this is exactly what sharper iron is. This is why right. we meet together every Absolutely. week is to to sharpen each other's faith, to to pick these things out of the text that one of us maybe hadn't seen. I'd, I'd never really thought about the fact that you're right. Earthquakes in the scriptures are signs that God is acting. I mean, we a couple of months ago on sharper iron, we we're looking through Amos and it's, it's an earthquake there in Amos that validates Amos's preaching, that he was a true preacher of the word. And, and we're going to see an earthquake later in Matthew's gospel on the resurrection. Mm -hmm. So so an earthquake is a sign. And that I'd never really thought of that. I, I do recall a, a professor that, that three of us had. I don't you, No, you wouldn't have had him, at Pastor Casper. I'm pointing, pointing at him. You, you would not his name. I won't his, know. his name is uh, uh, Professor Brian Moseman pointed mm -hmm. out from yeah. this text sure. that Jesus at the beginning actually makes a promise to his disciples. And, and it's not quite at the, it's back up in verse 18 in Matthew's gospel. When Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. So, so Jesus already told them where they're going. They're right. going to the other side. And what happens in the middle, they've got Jesus' promise. And they, they should believe that. But it, it seems that they, they don't. And, and here we get into how Jesus responds to their request. Save us, Lord, we are perishing Pastor Beck, you you brought up little no faith, shaken faith. What's Jesus' response? Yeah, I mean, he says, "Why are you afraid of your little faith?" And, and I think that's the idea that faith drives out fear. Uh, it's it's the idea that um, uh, there's there's not really room in our souls um, to be um, afraid uh, of the bad things, to be afraid of uh, of the terrors of this life. Um, at the same time that we have faith, faith drives that fear out. Uh, does that does that make sense? Uh, that's, that's kind of a short answer, but I think that that's that's what Jesus is getting at here. He's not saying that they're necessarily faithless, uh, but he's saying that they just their faith is is maybe struggling. It's it's hanging on by a thread here because um, they've forgotten who it is that's in the boat. They're going to ask that question in a minute. Who is this guy? Right, um, but. Right now, they've kind of forgotten who they've got in the boat with them. And, and like you said, like you pointed out, his promise that he's already made. Let's go across the other side. It's going to happen. Indeed, the promise is secure, and yet we don't trust it, do we? No. That's, that's, that's us, again. We have little faith. We're the ones that are shaken and disturbed, and, and that's, that's us in our unbelief. And we have that promise. We have that word. Uh, those of us who celebrated Transfiguration this Sunday just heard that word. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Don't roll your eyes at me. <laughs> There's that one-year lectionary again. So we'll get the transfiguration, <laughs> Pastor Casper, in a few weeks. So the other the other take on this um, is the tone that Christ speaks in, which again um, is a sanctified guess. But um, as this hits my ear, uh, I'm mindful of the fact that things are early on; things are not yet in their full focus for the disciples. Um, I hear him not saying, "Why are you afraid? Why did you wake me up?" let me sleep, right? As if he's woken up on the wrong side of the boat. Um, instead, I, I hear in those words, why are you afraid? Why are you afraid, oh, you of little faith? In the same way um, that a child in the midst of a storm uh, that comes, we had a pretty good storm come through our area here a few weeks ago, that strikes fear into the heart of, of a child. And, and his father comes and says, I got you. It's okay. Um, so I see this as, as an invitation of, of saying, yeah, the faith is lacking, right? But watch this. 
watch this and see. Um, and, and there in, in the seeing of, of Christ's power on full display and that manifestation of his glory, um, what a response of faith they have. Jesus has used this term for his account. He, he said in Matthew 6, verse 30, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into an oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Right? And, and there in that text, Jesus is, I think, speaking playfully with his disciples. He's teasing them. He's inviting them to see the silliness of their worry. And there he's talking about things like food and clothing, the basic necessities of life. Here he invites them into that same trust that in the middle of a, an earthquake, a storm on the sea that they have absolutely no control over, he invites them into that same trust even here with this call, why are you afraid, oh, you have little faith? So, I mean, and this is, again, maybe a bit of speculation, but what would what would Jesus ha have had them do? What would that have been the faithful response in this situation? Well, isn't, isn't crying out to the Lord the faithful response also? I think so. Hmm. Yeah. The Lord have mercy. That's that's right up right up our alley, isn't it? <clears throat> so maybe they're not entirely wrong. They asked the right person. Sure. And they asked the right thing. But their fear is misplaced. Maybe so. Okay. They're afraid of the storm rather than afraid of the one in the boat. What does it mean to fear? But God? they they Go also, ahead. in their requests, they draw an implication from it. They draw a conclusion. They say we are perishing. Right? Are they actually perishing? Or is Jesus in the boat with them? Right. So I, I think it's not the the problem isn't that they say, save us, Lord. Right? Uh, we're, <laughs> we're not going to get down on the disciples for asking Jesus to save them. Jesus <laughs> is in the business of saving them. Right. Uh, but we are perishing. Well, maybe it's not quite that bad. Maybe it's not quite that bad. Mm -hmm. Right. right. Um, Leave the dead to bury their dead. Yeah. You're not the dead ones, disciples. <laughs> You're right. the living ones. Yeah. And, there you go. and here they should have recognized that. I love it. Yeah. So Jesus in answer to their prayer, gets up, rebukes the wind and the sea, and there's a great calm. And we, I mean, the, the picture here, we shouldn't, you've, you've got an earthquake. I've never been in an earthquake. I've probably never been in a storm like this. Mm. But but help us help us see this in our minds. Pastor Casper. Well, that's, it's just complete opposition. The great shaking quake of the waves and then absolute still and calm on the other side of it. That's that is that is the the miraculous moment of this particular text. This pericope here we have what's going on, absolutely everything, chaos, disorder, and then nothing, calm and perfect silence. And I think the the word there that's used is is no accident um, that Jesus rebukes the wind and the wave. I mean, it, hey, it's, stop it. Uh, yeah. So uh, to to Pastor Hill's point that Jesus isn't getting onto the disciples. Up from his nap, I think he is getting onto the storm for waking him up. From his nap. <laughs> he, he says, "Stop it! Be quiet! Quit!" Right, and it does. It does by his word, right? By his performative, living, and active word. At the word of Jesus, um, you know, storms stop and the dead are raised. Um, incredible stuff happens when Jesus opens his mouth. Uh, which, again, to bring into our context, is makes it so incredible um, that pastors have been given the um, the authorization, the the charge to speak a word of forgiveness and peace and grace uh, to people who otherwise um, are afraid, uh, uh, or or at least have the potential to be afraid of what happens next. Right? Jesus, with this action, then causes these men in the boat to marvel, and they ask a question: What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? What's the answer to that question? The question is, it should be clear in their minds, these faithful Jews who know the word of God, right? 
and yet they don't. And they've got it all over the place. They have it in Job 38. Who is who will shut the sea and the doors that burst forth from the womb and set the barriers and the bars? Psalm 65. We get the the ends of the earth and the farthest seas, and and uh, and and the the roaring of the waves and the tumult of the people that will be stilled by God. Psalm 89. You rule the raging sea. Psalm 107. He made the storm still. There's all sorts of opportunity for them to put it together, but as is often the case in Matthew, they don't quite get it yet, do they? Mm. They're not there. They do a lot of marveling, though. Mm. So the answer to the question is, what sort of man is this? This man is the son of God. Yes. This is the mighty outstretched heart, hand of God saving his people from 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 certain end. Mm. Mm. And, and again, maybe the fact that we don't have an answer to this question directly invites us to answer that question ourselves. Pastor Hill? Yeah, and I, I'm just so reminded of, of the opening words of, of the Gospel of John, right? He is the divine word, right? Um, the one who was himself active in creation. As it says, all things were made through him, and without him not anything was not anything made that was made, right? Um, Father, Son, Spirit, all there active in creation, and not just divided up neatly uh, across personal lines of creator, redeemer, sanctifier. Um, so he does display uh, the fullness of his deity here. That continues to be on display as Matthew continues. Jesus and his disciples get to the other side. They've made the, the cruise across the Sea of Galilee through this storm that Jesus has calmed. And they come to the country of the Gadarenes. And, and who do they meet? What's the scene when they get to the other side? Everyone two demon-possessed who are living in the tombs, hmm. right? Um, <laughs> we, can, we can read those words quickly and I don't think get a full picture of what a strange sight this must have been. Um, <laughs> uh, first off, of course, tombs, death, etc., were things that would have all been regarded as very unclean. And even here, away from the heart of Judaism um, in Gentile territory, uh, no matter what culture you're in, if somebody's dwelling in a cemetery, uh, this is an uncomfortable reality. So um, I think he has just um, met with uh, the strangest possible scene you could you could see of of people disheveled, um, acting unusually. Um, you've seen pictures similarly, I'm sure, of people who are struggling with some deep troubles or illness. Um, it's just a very vivid image in my mind. Right, and I think that this even uh, maybe harkens back to those words uh, earlier in the chapter today. Um, leave the dead to bury their own dead. I mean, mm. here Jesus is encountering people who are living dead people. Right, not not zombies per se, but I mean these are people who are possessed by demons. These are people who are as good as dead um, to the to the wider society and probably to their families as well. Um, and Jesus is going to bring life into this situation. The picture is Jesus going into enemy territory. Right, I, I right, think. Right. right. I mean everything, and and I think the whole the whole scene here. Going through the enemy territory, the sea tried to stop him, right? The, I mean, thinking of all the, the chaos and everything that would have attacked there. Now he gets to the other side, and, and the forces of evil continue to align themselves against him. But the, the words that we get from the demons, right? That, and I think we ask verse 29, these are the demons talking through these two demon-possessed men. What do they say to Jesus? What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? 
that's the confirmation answer, right? What does it say? All right. So Pastor Casper read the text for us again. Now, now help us draw out what what what's going what's behind these words. Yeah. So when uh, when Jesus encounters demons, oftentimes they ask this this same question. It's kind of hard to render in English. What have you to do with us? Um, what is it to you and to us? Kind of a deal, um, literally from the Greek. But the the idea here is. Um, they're asking about their standing and their place. They're they're facing off here. Um, and you notice in what they say, have you come to torment us? But they know that there's a time coming uh, when their time is up, when their time is done, when, uh, when when the devil will be cast into the lake of burning fire. They know that that all of this is coming. And so they're asking Jesus, um, oh, is it? Is it time for that already, um, or are we still able to um, to, to see uh, discord and, and disbelief among the sons of men? Um, so that's the question that they come with. Um, but then uh, almost immediately, they begin to beg out, and they begin to beg to him, right? If you cast us out, send us into the herd of pigs. They um, they understand that Jesus, uh, he's it's not the time, capital T, capital T, right it's not that time it's not the end uh and yet jesus is is dragging that last day reality when satan and, and all of his demons will be uh will be done forever he's dragging all of that back to matthew chapter 8 in this time when he is bringing the kingdom of god bringing the reign of god into these two men's lives um, and so they 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 see that coming they see that happening and so they make this strange request uh send us into these pigs why pigs? What's the picture with pigs? Well, it, uh, it's the ultimate unclean animal in the Jewish mind, of course. And these demons know that uh, that their host is about to be cleansed, right? Um, and they want to run to another home for them. Um, <laughs> right? Where um, there's bacon. Exactly. Everyone loves bacon. You know, they're, they're, they're going to go someplace uh, that, that matches uh, what they are to another unclean animal. Um, thinking, of course, that they'll be comfortable there. They'll they'll live out, uh, I suppose, some very nice pig life. Um, <laughs> but I mean, if they but, but, if they infest and uh, and 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 go into another uh, clean individual, who's to say Jesus won't come along and kick them out again? Right. 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 This is maybe the best option that they have well, from their perspective. And and the other option or other other aspect too is you know what happens to the pigs? Oh, they sure. run headlong and into the sea and die. Um, Pigs can swim. <laughs> Seriously. Look it up on YouTube. No, yeah, look, look it up. There is an island in the Bahamas yes. um, that you can go to and swim with the pigs. Some shipwreck happened there. The pigs got uh, off of the ship, and they live there. Cleanest pigs you've ever seen in and your life. And they're adorable. They are adorable, and people snorkel with them. So pigs do have the ability to swim. The pigs snorkel? Um, people <laughs> snorkel with the pigs. You should, oh, see, okay. you should see the little masks. Um <laughs> But at any rate, that's not um, what's happening. This in is why we don't usually do a roundtable, right? right? <laughs> but, but the point is, right, um, they have the physical ability to swim. So in their drowning, we see God's judgment poured out on the, the demons and the unclean. Um, so so the drowning actually is a judgment from rather than them, you know. And like all good Lutherans, when we see evil drowned in water, we should always see baptism in that. There is something that happens when water takes place in the Word of God, and this is one of those examples. Well, and drowning drowning is one of those images that is in the Scriptures. It's not all over the place, but but we should find significance in that with this drowning. So you've, you've brought out baptism. Where else do we see drowning in the Scriptures? What can we draw from that? 
three instances in the New Testament do we um, see drowning referred to. One is in Hebrews, where we refer to the drowning of Pharaoh um, and all of his host in the Red Sea. Um, the other time is also in the Gospel of Matthew. I think it's chapter 18, um, where we talk. Uh, Jesus mentions that if any of us cause a little one to sin, it would be better to have a great millstone fastened around our neck and to be drowned in the sea, right? So drowning here is clearly a sign of God's extreme disdain and judgment um, for, for something terrible. And um, that, that text in Matthew 18 then means that if we cause a little one to sin, it's, it's on par with being something demonic, really, for us right. to do that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely God's judgment that's coming here. And this is a foretaste of what's going to come later, because here Jesus goes to the realm of the dead before the time. Well, where else does Jesus go into the realm of the dead during his three-day rest in the tomb, proclaiming his victory? Um, and then the ultimate manifestation of this and the putting away of all of Satan and his power once and for all comes at the last day. So he's giving us a, a, a picture of what's to come in his rest in the tomb and ultimately at the very end. Pastor Casper, to go back to your connection to baptism here, I'm thinking of Luther's flood prayer, which talks about drowning hard-hearted Pharaoh and all his hosts in the Red Sea. And and I think we say something similar. I don't have the text right in front of me, but about the, the sin in this person would be drowned and die, which is awfully strong language. So why why does why do I need to drown and die, Pastor Casper? Well, that is that is the continual teaching of baptism that we should die to sin and rise again anew in Christ daily, making making the sign of the cross over our heart to remember our baptism, recite the creed and the Lord's prayer, and go on about your business. That's that's exactly what happens in baptism once and also daily in the life of the Christian. This death to sin is is exactly the the Christian life. Mm -hmm. So that which is a sinner in us has to die, right? Just like the the demons, uh, they have to be put to death. So that which is sinful in us uh, daily by contrition has to be put to death. The people of the town, they see this. The herdsmen flee. They go and tell them what's happened. And, and this city, instead of marveling like the disciples and asking who is this, they're ready for Jesus to get the heck out of Dodge. What's Why the reaction like this from the from the town? The swine market tanked. Mm. <laughs> Futures yeah. on pork bellies. <laughs> oh, this um, is too many pastor jokes. <laughs> Just we only got four minutes left, so get them all in. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I mean the, the situation here is that you have again, like like we've had this entire text. You have the the people on the outside looking in, the people that call Jesus teacher, and and the people on the inside uh, in the kingdom. Uh, sometimes faith shaken, uh, yet nevertheless uh, Christ is Lord, right? Um, and so here you see that Jesus is coming to a region that's a little bit, uh, as Pastor Apple put out, uh, it's on, he's on enemy ground, right? Um, he's doing battle, uh, but um, you know most people are going to still reject him, right? Um, he came to his own, uh, but his own did not receive him. Right. And so that's what we have here um, is essentially people have seen this great sign. They see people in their right mind who are uh, who are demon possessed living in tombs um, and they don't want anything to do with it, uh, whether that's because of their own uh, their own closed mindedness. Maybe they uh, they don't believe the miracle actually happened. Um, but really what happens is um, throughout God, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, the kingdom, the reign of God keeps showing up. That's what Jesus preached that at the very beginning. That's what John the Baptist preached. Uh, repent for the reign of heaven is at hand. And when the king shows up, um, you can be glad about that and say, amen. Um, or you can say, uh, I think you need to head on out of here, Jesus. And that's what the, the folks in the town do. 
Pastor Hill, more concluding thoughts during the morning. Well, one concluding thought regarding um, the demon possession here is I think we need to be mindful that there may be people um, out there wondering, do I need to worry about something like this happening to me? Any of the accounts of, of demonic possession in the New Testament would rightly cause people to wonder, um, is this still a real thing that happens today? Um, do I have to be worried about it? And the thing that we should remember um, is um, <laughs> we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit in baptism. And never in the in the text of the New Testament do we ever see um, a Christian uh, possessed by a demon. So if there is anyone out there wondering, you know, um, do I need to worry about this? Is Satan around every corner and gonna gonna jump on me in this way? Take heart. Um, the Spirit lives within you, um, and you are already possessed, um, but possessed by the Spirit of the Lord. Thank you, brothers. Pastor Dustin Beck of Holy Cross Lutheran Church in Warda. Pastor Nate Hill of St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Wind, and Pastor Jason Casper of Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in LaGrange, Texas. It's been a joy to be with you this morning to study God's Word, to sharpen our faith together as we dig into Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 34. Jesus is the Lord over all. He is the one to whom we owe full allegiance because He alone can give us resurrection from the dead. He has the power over the wind, the waves, over Satan, over death itself. The faithful response is to hear that word, to believe that word, and to follow Christ unto eternal life. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.